Well, hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good middle of the night to you, wherever you may be. It is Thursday, the 8th of February. It's very wet, windy and dark where I am. And this is Paul English Live. Well, it will be in a second. See, look at that. See what I did. I didn't want to leave you left out from a fumble at the beginning. Here we go. Welcome back. Hope you've all had a cracking week, whatever that might mean. Hope it doesn't mean bones. For those of you that have seen the headline for today's show, yes, I have a guest coming along, Mr. Dave Gahari. He'll be along in a wee while, not right at the start, but 15, 20, 25 minutes, something like that. few serious things to announce this week. Well, there have been a few little sad moments over the last few days. They might not be sad to everyone, but they've been a little bit sad for me. They'll be coming a bit later in the show. It. That's my cue point where we uh, we fade the music out and I say hello, good uh, afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. This is Paul English Live here at paulenglishlive.com. Uh, we're here every Thursday, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. US Eastern Time, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. in the UK. Or oh, is that Great Britain? Hmm. Or, and uh, that would th- therefore mean 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock on mainland Europe. So wherever you are, welcome to the show. If you're in Australia, uh, get back to bed. Come on. It's silly. It's very early in the morning out there. Um, been an interesting week all round. Um, I've just been plowing on with lots of little interesting tasks around here. And as I said in the opening shot, one of the interesting little tasks was getting a guest on for this week. Um, and Dave Gahari from Money Tree Publishing will be joining us in 15 or 20 minutes' time. He's picked his song. We only got one out of him for this week. But we've got another song lined up, and I can see that people are already cheekily, mm, yeah, cheekily asking and making song requests early on in the show before the rest of you have even lined up. So uh, not that this is necessarily a music show, although who knows, maybe it's going to turn into one. It's, uh, it's difficult to say, really, with all these things. Um, 
Speaking of music, I saw a very interesting um, video earlier today about the music industry and what went wrong with it. Now, you might not think anything went wrong with it, or maybe you're somebody who thinks it's been wrong for an awful long time. I know some people do. What happened to that good old music, I hear people saying? And uh, I guess it all depends what you mean by old, doesn't it? Uh, in terms of how old and how far back are we talking about? But uh, here's a little tale for you, and it kind of dovetails into what we do here very much in terms of media control and a kind of loss of colour in so many things. Now, whatever you may think about popular music from, say, the arrival of Chuck Berry with uh, the beginning of rock and roll in the mid-50s, mid to late 50s, um, which, of course, was an offshoot of uh, Jump Swing, uh, Louis Jordan and people like that, which is fantastic stuff. There ain't nobody here but as chickens. Um, I haven't got any chickens, by the way, and I don't want to get too distracted, and I would do if I had some. But uh, from those early days back in the 50s, um, I think many of us got kind of lucky with the sheer variety and energy that went into popular music. I mean, some people will say, no, it was just a terrible din. Well, some of it was a terrible din. And a lot of it today, of course, is a a tiresome, boring, piffling sort of din, a sort of an electro soup of nonsense. Listen to me. But why is that? Why why did it kind of nosedive? Or why is the perception amongst people in my generation, because I am very, very old, why is the perception that it's not very good? Why is it that my two sons, who are in their early 20s, have nothing to do with me, because I don't have my old record collection lying around the house or anything it's actually i haven't played lps for ages you know you end up tripping over them breaking your neck but um why is it that they are tuning in to all the bands i used to listen to um from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s why have they done that well, because there's a sense that there was a much stronger, larger, and better human element in the whole thing. And there really was, I think. It turned out that, uh, you remember that chap, Bill Clinton? I know, I'm sorry to bring dreadful thoughts up so early in the show, but try not to think on it too hard. He's still bouncing around, peddling nonsense and acting as a cover for his rather terrible wife, if that's what she actually is. I don't know quite what she is. In the mid-90s, he passed an act, or was involved in an act, uh, yes, not that act. He was involved in passing some sort of telecommunications act. And um, the result of it was that there was a kind of opening up, supposedly, this is how it would have been phrased back to us, I'm sure, at the time, of the radio market in the United States. Now, radio in the US is a completely different animal to the way it's been here in the UK, because in the UK, like everything else, it's state-regulated, you see, or has been for an awful long time. Of course, for our benefit, you see, we need protecting from terrible ideas, the sorts of terrible ideas that sometimes float up in this show as well. And uh, so they changed, the, they changed the rules around the marketing, or the market itself, and a couple of companies, one's called Clearfeed, I think, and another one was Cumulus. These groups started to buy up. They were allowed to now to buy up all the radio stations. And uh, I ought to st I'll try and stick the YouTube clip link into the Rumble chat. For those of you who are just listening to this, if you want to also talk in it, there's a channel on Rumble where we go out as well at the same time. Anyway, um, what occurred was that uh, huge numbers of uh, radio stations began to fall into very few hands. Uh, you'll notice this pattern, of course, or be aware of it in all sorts of industries. The prolonged power of money and the control thereof has affected all 
areas of sort of expression, art, so-called, there's not much of it left now, in such a way, a way that the, um, the control ends up in very few hands. And what, what I noticed, it was just from the first 10 minutes of this interview, which I found really, really interesting, I did, because of the way it affects us even to this day, is that uh, they sacked, they got rid of all the sort of uh, playlist managers in all these stations that they bought up because you know streamlining corporate efficiency and all that piffle and nonsense that nobody's interested in except the bankers and um they got rid of them because they they kind of replaced them with a central hub oh we want all this type of music and it's much easier why do we need to pay all these people this money to pick all these records and of course one of the reasons that they existed was that these this huge number, I don't know how many thousands there are in the States, but there are literally thousands of, of radio stations, which is wonderful in a way. I think I'd be very happy there just tuning in all over the place. Maybe not. But um, uh, they would all reflect a very distinctive local taste in music. Now, we, we don't need to go into the cliches, but they would, and the, there was much more free reign. And this basically enabled the arrival of new bands into the into the space and i think new bands is a bit like kissing frogs really there's an awful lot of mediocre very enthusiastic people but you know i think if you're really going to be musically great it's it's uh, few and far between it's really specialized the sort of it's we're all looking for exceptional talents and i think during the 60s 70s and 80s and 90s well i kind of lost interest in the 80s mainly but uh, there were there were many they kept coming through there was a sort of competition amongst many bands and solo performers and all these variety of styles i think i've mentioned it before here there was a gig you know i'm going to say it again in the merion center in leeds in 1968 <laughs> and top of the bill was jimi hendrix but second on the bill was engelbert humperdinck yeah him uh, and, um, oh, was it the other way around? No, it was the other way around, yeah. Jimi Hendrix was the support act to Engelbert Humperdinck. Can you imagine going along to a gig like that? You'd never see it these days. Everything's being sort of homogenised and papped down. But that's what occurred in the States, and so there was this kind of crushing of uh, space for new bands to come into and demonstrate things. Now, if you... If you're also familiar with the early days of the internet in the 90s when it took off in the public space, you may also remember an app that was very naughty at the time called Napster. And Napster allowed people like you and me, naughty people, I mean, I've only been naughty a couple of times, but uh, to share all our music collections with one another. Uh, I never got into it, to be quite honest. I was busy with other things, but I could see its appeal, and that changed the dynamics as well. So this consolidation of media power um, has not been good. Um, it's not been good at all, in my view. And I suspect, this is just to finish on a kind of positive note, there must be um, a lot of talented musicians out there, or maybe there's not as many as there were, simply because this perception rightfully has built up amongst people uh, who possibly could have had a musical career, that it's just going to be too hard basket and that they're not going to get in and they have to sign up with these big deals with record companies and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's my little sort of explanation of it. I think, you know, with, with all those periods of variety in music, there was a lot of stuff that, frankly, I can't stand. I mean, but it appealed to someone. And the idea that there were all these niche markets in music is a wonderful thing, I think. So... Um, you know, uh, someone's just written here, Radio Caroline is still going on the internet. Yep, 
the pirate radio stations over here. In fact, the story, is it Caroline? Um, I know the one I was looking at, Radio London. In fact, I should have got some of their jingles. Maybe I'll dig some up for later in the show. Fantastic jingles. This was a radio station uh, set up on a boat. I can't remember the name of it. Like they all were outside of the jurisdiction of the British government uh, in the 60s, along with uh, Radio Caroline, which became the most famous of these. And uh, they their boat was built by a company in the States that built basically radio stations on boats they sailed it across the atlantic the mast broke on the way over so they had to repair it but they effectively pioneered the idea that we the young people of the day could get to listen to the sort of things they wanted to listen to without the bbc sticking in their great big censorship nose into things and it was very successful and very cool they did a lot of fantastic stuff and they got all their jingles done by a company in houston texas called PAMS. See, I'm remembering all this stuff. I didn't even know we were going to start talking about this, because I'm talking about it. PAMS did all these fantastic jingles uh, with all these choral arrangements, big studios, big bands. It must have cost an absolute bomb to do it. But it gives that lovely warm feeling to radio stations from that era. And it would contrast, I guess, quite a lot with Jimi Hendrix coming on playing Purple Haze or something like that. But uh, fantastic stuff. They were really giddy, de- giddy and heady days. Maybe we need to recreate them. And certainly there's an opportunity out there, it seems to me, uh, for some enterprising bods, a little group, who knows, it might be you, to establish some, <coughs> sorry, choking, <coughs> choking on me, on me lozenge, can you hear that? <coughs> to establish some kind of music desk um, where talent could be identified and brought in and raised up again, and not with a view to making piles of money, because, although I know that they're all kind of interested in that, but to really get some I don't know, some variety and quality back into music. I'd love to play a part of that because music has been such a massive part of everybody's life, including mine. Okay, so there we go. That's the opening salvo for the show. You're listening to Paul English Live here at paulenglishlive.com. We go out, as I said, every Thursday. We're on wbn324.zil, Z-I-L, if you're in Britain, Z-I-L for American listeners. Um, And we're here every, as I said, every Thursday. Uh, we're also going out over uh, speakfreeradio.com, Freefall Radio South Africa, Global Voice uh, Network, and uh, we're on Rumble, and I'm looking at adding other things as well. It's an ongoing sort of uh, little task here to, to add up these things in. Now, on a more serious note, switching tone right now, I didn't comment on it at the time, although you may have, I think I, I probably passed a kind of vague comment about it when it was going on. A couple of weeks ago here, it might have even been last week, I don't know, I always take a little bit of time before I want to say anything about these things. <clears throat> there was um, a British general started talking about conscription, or at least the newspapers did. When I looked into this, this was some kind of speech he'd made over a year and a half ago, although he may have added to it in recent weeks, I don't quite know. Struck me that the whole thing was really rather comical and scary at the same time, a combination of the two, but I've noted, probably you have too, that there are a lot of um, items and articles floating around saying it's war, it's it's going to be war. I got a couple of clips for you. I kind of ones. Um, I didn't know whether to play the serious one first and the and the the less serious one afterwards. I think we'll do the serious one first. This is a chap called Mark Atwood. Just to let you know, warning: there's a few f bombs in here. They're justified, but this is a sweet little quote. Listen to this. 
Morning campers, coffee time, how are you? Hope you're doing well. Well, an exciting morning. The head of the British Army talks about conscription. Stand in line, tension. Fuck off, are you fucking serious? Every single war that's ever, ever happened has been made up by the same people in the same fucking clubs that they're all in, that you're not in. I implore you, if you are a young man in Britain of British descent, of British origin, do not take the white feather. Because it's just murder. The white feather is the thing they used to give out to people who refused to go to war in the First World War. I was brainwashed by that bullshit when I was a kid. I joined the military when I was a kid. I thought I was serving Queen and Country. But the Queen was a paedophilic satanic reptile. So was her husband, I met him. Horrible man, horrible, horrible, disgusting, filthy bastard. That's who they want you to work for. Yeah, Charles, that's not the real Charles. The real Charles has got long gone. The one in the hospital, God knows who that is, but God knows what will be coming out of hospital if he does survive whatever he's supposed to be surviving. William, he's the son of the King of Spain. Harry, he's the son of Hewitt's. In fact, the real Harry apparently died in Dublin. Look it up. I don't actually know if that's a fact. But the point is that if you are conscripted you would be working for the British government. The British government just tried to kill millions of British people with a fake fucking virus that made people have a bioweapon injected into their bodies because they were too scared to do anything else. The people that he's asking you to conscript and represent in a supposed war are the people that want you dead. It's pretty simple. So don't do it. If you're the parent of a person, a young man of serving potential age, please discourage them from being conscripted. And this is not against any whatsoever, because I know the vast majority of people in the militaries across the world are good people and just try to do their best and they're extremely skilled at what they do. But war, no, no, just say no. Say fucking no. Say fuck off. The only war we should be going up against, into, is the war against the people who've been trying to kill the human race, which is everybody in government, a huge amount of doctors, and a lot of other people that have got a lot to answer for. And they will. Their time is coming. And the other thing is, if you're seeing headlines like this in the Daily Schmail and the fucking Sun and all that crap, please don't get in a state of fear. They're trying to push us to World War Three because it's all part of the wake-up, in my opinion. Um, and the wake-up is your government hates you, has always hated you, has tried to kill you, all your family, and all your ancestors. Because this is a farm. You are the farm animals. We are the farm animals. And it's time for that to end. This is the Great Awakening, not the Great Reset. And we're not going to go to war, are we? Are we? We're not going to go to war. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I'm going to play you the other clip. I mean, uh, war is a condition. We're going to have to redefine it a little bit, but that was a great quote. That's Mark Atwood talking about oh, about a week or so ago about all this kind of stuff. And uh, I 
can't disagree with anything he said. This is a nonsense suggestion and part of the fear-mongering approach. Um, but uh, a few years prior to that, on a television comedy show, this came up. Today's historic trade agreement between Australia and Hong Kong marks a new season of hope for the future of world trade. The two countries have been at each other's throats for years, but now the hatchet's been buried by a treaty which allows unrestricted trading between all parties at all levels. I'm joined now by Martin Crace, the British Minister with special responsibility for the Commonwealth, and Gavin Hawtrey, the Australian Foreign Secretary in Canberra. Gentlemen, this is pretty historic stuff. Well done. A future of unbridled harmony then, Australia? Yes, I think uh, Martin Crace and I can be uh, pretty satisfied. It's, uh, it's a good day. And if, as in the past, Australia exceed their agreement, what will you do about it? This is a very satisfactory treaty, which I'm sure will work well. Naturally, if the limits were exceeded, then this would be met with a firm line, but I can't see this being uh, necessary. Mr Hawtrey, he's knocking a firm line in your direction. What are you going to do about that? Well, in that case, we just reimposed sanctions, as we did last year. Sanctions? Hang on a second. Successful. They've only just swallowed their sanctions, and now they're burping them back up in your face. I think sanctions is, is rather premature talk. Certainly, if sanctions were imposed, we should, uh, we should have to retaliate with appropriate measures. But I, I think can't... appropriate measures is a uh, euphemism, Mr Hawtrey. You know what it means. What are you going to do about that? Well, I'd just have to go back to Cabinet. And ask them about what? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a matter for the military. Uh... The military? I, I, th I think military measures is totally inappropriate reaction, and, and I think this is way, way over the top. Sounds like you're being inappropriate, are you? Of course I'm not being inappropriate, but Martin Crace knows that full well. This is the sort of misunderstanding that I thought we'd laid to rest during our negotiating period. Misunderstanding it certainly is. It's certainly not a treaty, is it? You're both at each other's throats. You're backing yourselves up with arms. What are you going to do about it? Mr Hawtrey, let me give you a hint. Bang! What are you asking me to say? You know damn well what I'm asking you to say. You're putting yourself in a situation of armed conflict. What are you plunging yourself into? You'd like me to say it? I want you to say it, yes. You want the word? The word! I will not flinch. You will not flinch from? War. War! Gentlemen, I'll put you on hold. If fighting did break out, it will probably occur in Eastmanstown in the Upper Cataracts on the Australia-Hong Kong border. Our reporter Donald Bethlehem is there now. Donald, what's the atmosphere like? Tension here is very high, Chris. The stretched twig of peace is at melting point. People here are literally bursting with war. This is very much a country that's going to blow up in its face. Well, gentlemen, it seems you have little option now but to declare war immediately. Well, this is quite impossible. I couldn't take such a decision without referring to my superior, Chris Patton. He he's in Hong Kong. Good, because he's on the line now via satellite. Mr Patton, what do you think of the idea of a war now? I'll take that as a yes. Very well, it's war. War it is. That's it, Chris. It's war. War has broken out. This is war. That's it. Yes, it's war. From now on, the day today will be providing the most immediate coverage of any war ever fought. On the front line and in your face, Donald Bethlehem. Standing by, Douglas Hurd. The day-to-day -day smart bombs have nose-mounted cameras. This is smart bomb Stephen, and that is Susanna Gekeloys. I'll be reporting from inside the fight. Like some crazy Trojan. And keeping an eye on everything that's going on out there at the day-to-day -day news pipe, Douglas Trox. Chris. You know, when I heard the... Um... <laughs> I like that sketch a lot. That's from a fantastic comedy uh, series that aired in Britain in the 90s. So that must be 25, 30 years old. I can't remember. It's early, mid, probably mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Called The Day Today. Uh, a sort of spoof 
on the media. It was um, completely accurate, of course. Um, and uh, someone's written best comedy ever. It was certainly right up there. It was absolutely fantastic series, and it broke a lot of people that became sort of very Alan Partridge. Now, if you're outside of the UK, you possibly don't know what I'm talking about. But this uh, Alan Partridge has morphed into this insane sort of character who is also a radio show host. So. Hopefully, if I do well, I can turn into Alan Partridge as the weeks go by. Uh, possibly not. Okay, those of you who know, the qualities of Alan Partridge will be shuddering at the thought of that. <laughs> but uh, it was a fantastic sort of pastiche and, uh, can I say, piss take um, uh, of the whole thing. Uh, and um, so, uh, yeah, when I heard, the, uh, when I heard the, Br- the British chap or the reports on what was going on, that sketch just jumped straight into my head because what they've been suggesting is very, very silly. You see, I my take on it would be this. We actually are at war. We've been at war all of our lives. It's just been a hidden war that's been waged on us really by our own government, which really isn't ours, as many listeners here will know on a regular basis. And if you've done even a mild bit of research into history or even to the current state of affairs, how can you possibly say that the government of, in my case, Britain or England or whatever you want to call it, um, actually represents the interest of the vast majority of the people who are English and Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish and Irish. It doesn't. It hasn't done for a long time. It's, uh, you know, the old saying, it's a big club and you're not in it. Uh, And so this war that they've been waging upon us, like by stealth, by controlling the processes of communication, like controlling radio stations, which I was mentioning just a few moments ago, all of this is part and parcel of the sort of trouble that we've that we've had to face. So there is a war taking place, and we do need to, we do need to be conscripted into an army. And if you're a listener here, you've kind of self conscripted yourself into it because we have to deal with the enemy within. It's not an external enemy. What Russia? I mean, I, I don't know if there have been any polls. I imagine there must have been uh, amongst people on the street. You know, who would you rather be governed by? The current so-called Prime Minister of Britain, who nobody voted for. He was dropped in, parachuted in by the usual suspects, the banking mob, right? Or Vladimir Putin. I'm with Putin, frankly. There you go. I don't speak much Russian. Moscow, yeah, yet. That's good enough, isn't it? It's a starting point. Anyway, we can crack on from there uh, and take it and take it forward. So... You're involved in a war, whether you like it or not. It's just not the one that the British military were talking about. And I did see some people afterwards um, talking about um, uh, conscription, some ex-military guys in uh, in uh, some TV interviews saying, well, conscription's a silly idea, really. You don't want people in there that don't really want to fight. I mean, you don't need people in there at all, do you? Technology has moved on so far. And what do these people think that we're actually fighting for? Britain, it doesn't exist in that way. I mean, am I supposed to think that the military people are living in a vacuum about the culture that they live in? That's the only sort of view I can come to with the whole thing. They're basically out of what's left of their barking little minds. And yet, they're probably highly competent, skillful people who understand things and have access to information, the likes of which people like you and I are never going to see. I accept all that. But what would anybody be fighting for? The restoration of Britain? I don't think so. It's not even here. So, as you can see, it's a little bit more, you know, double entendre, as it were. That's actually the wrong phrase. But there's a sort of hidden language in the whole thing. 
Okay, the time's just coming up to, we're about half an hour in here, and uh, I mentioned earlier on at the start of the show that uh, we would be joined by a guest, and he's finally managed to finish off his eggs for breakfast, or whatever he's been doing, and so I'd like to welcome to the show Dave Gahari. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Paul. Am I coming through loud and clear? Yeah, you are. I can make you come through even louder, but you're very clear. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, the eggs were a little bit ago, but um, this was, uh, it's never, it never turns out the way you think it's going to turn out, right? No. So you figure you're going to get here at this time, and it's going to take you X number of minutes to complete that task, and then you'll be sitting in front of the microphone. Uh, But when you get there and you receive a text a text that says, I'm going to be a little late today. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I'm a little late. So I apologize. No, that's, uh, that's absolutely fine. Um, You're allowed to be, I've actually, we've had a bit of fun in the first sort of half an hour. I've been going through, I think I mentioned to you earlier today when we were setting this up, you know, I was going to, I did talk a little bit about that music video on the uh, acquisition of radio stations in the States and uh, the chat on Rumble's a bit lively with all that kind of stuff. I did see a comment, by the way, from Eric, Eric, about some chap near to you who used to work as an engineer on Radio London. Please chase me up on that after the show. Maybe not tonight, but maybe tomorrow at some point. That's really interesting to me me um but dave welcome to the show i mean we've we've talked quite a bit about things and um for people that haven't or don't know you i know this is for people that do know you of course this might be a little bit sort of abcs but simply why is it you are a publisher of books that people could say could put a question mark against and go what an interesting they might not use that word what an interesting collection of books you publish how did you get into a line of publishing these sorts of books at Money Tree Publishing and the other imprints that you've got? What was the little path, maybe it's a big path, that brought you into this space? Yeah, I mean, I guess it could be summed up with free speech. That was always something that I held and continue to hold dear. And I'm an American, and I guess Americans brought up in certain time periods will have different feelings about free speech. Yeah. But um, me being born in 1960, it was still America. Uh, It was recognizable as America relative to today, uh, where it's uh, much changed from that point. You, you always hear the, uh, boy, those were the good old days. and mm-hmm. Things were a lot different back then. They were. They actually were. And, you know, every, obviously, every era, you know, could lay claim to that statement. I mean, if we look at the 1920s in both of our countries, it's it looked a lot different than it does today or did in the 60s or, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever it might be. Uh, but growing up in America in that uh, time, you uh, were taught uh, about how special the country was, how fortunate you were to be an American, why you were fortunate to be an American. And I grew up with that. And I guess I realized early on 
how important the document documents that your uh, your ancestors had created for this country. And of course, in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment is, and I think rightfully so, uh, freedom of speech, um, along with uh, some other protections. And uh, because of that, I always thought that any challenge or any um, throttling of free speech should always be confronted. Um, and the books that we carry uh, are all pretty much um, attacked, um, mm -hmm. you know, from one degree or another uh, by uh, different groups and individuals, but primarily by the uh, powers who should not be. Uh, as uh, some people like to say, including myself. Yep. And uh, when I had found out about one of the books that we did carry, that it was banned by Amazon, I think this was back in 2015, so nine years ago, roughly, eight, nine years ago, um, I, I was shocked to hear that because this was something that um, really didn't exist uh, at that time. It was to hear that something was banned was like, you know, well, did you know our next door neighbor hit the lottery? What? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> never did like that guy. <clears throat> you know, so yes, it was very shocking. And when I heard about that, I uh, immediately said, you know, that's not right. And let's carry the book. And that was even before that particular imprint existed, you know, and that was, as I said, back in the end of 2015. And that was uh, that book about Sandy Hook, which, you know, a lot of folks find very intriguing that um, Sandy Hook elementary school shooting. And uh, it, 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 you know, it, it literally, uh, you know, the inconsistencies of the narrative, the way the narrative was laid out by the, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, the, the, the mainstream media, government, uh, you know, complex, whatever it is, the, the narrative had a lot of holes in it, according to a lot of folks all around the world. And they were intrigued and wanted to know more. And of course, then there, there were the other folks who uh, would uh, bristle uh, at even the suggestion that you would want to question whether or not the, uh, the shooting occurred as everyone was told it did, or if there was a shooting at all. And so, it, you know, it's our right as not just Americans, but as individuals, to be able to question anything, to be able to think about whatever you want to think about. Now, if you, uh, you know, as they say, yell fire in a crowded theater, I mean, obviously you have to, you know, put the brakes on something like that. But I mean, for the most part, just thinking about something and entertaining it and perhaps voicing your opinion 
shouldn't be confronted with uh, opprobrium or uh, violence or force or sanctions or legal action, legal enforcement. Uh, it, it should just be accepted as, hey, this is what this person thinks. And that's fine because I think what I want to think and I don't expect anybody to throttle what I want to say. So that was what really got me going with the publishing. And that was in 2015. And that was, of course, Moonrock Books. And we started with one book and we went up to 12. And then the other imprint, Money Tree Publishing, that started in January of 2017 with one book. And it didn't start for free speech reasons directly, although they were related. But the author himself was under attack for what he had written. Yeah. And he was just, he was wanting to throw in the towel. There was just not enough upside to continue doing it. So I encouraged him not to do that because I thought his book was very important. And that's what started with Money Tree Publishing. And now we're up to, I guess, about 20 uh, items there. Not yes. going to go much more. But uh, I would say, you know, free speech is what got me involved in it. I didn't, I didn't grow up th thinking I would be doing this. Certainly not. No. Of course, we're told over here that we have free speech, but that's about as far as it goes. We're just told that. When people begin to nibble around the edges of it or push up against it, all sorts of other strange little sorts of interferences arrive on their doorstep, and they find that the idea of free speech doesn't sort of translate in the way that it used to over here. I mean, it did used to exist. People behaved pretty well and had the opportunities to question things. Then people started to get their knickers in a twist about stuff. And suddenly certain things are deemed you can't even question these things. Uh, I mean, one of the little things I have, uh, a sort of little thought that runs through my head is, uh, okay, so we're not allowed to talk about certain things. This must sound pathetic, I guess, to certain listeners out there. Um, and it sounds pathetic to me too. It's it, it, it's got to that state where there's a kind of coercive power in the land and people know about it. Um, it's coming up all over the place. Uh, we've had this case recently, which you might be familiar with, this incident with a chap called Sam Melia up in the north of England, actually from my hometown of Leeds, in fact, who's just had to undergo what apparently was called a court case, but it didn't sound like one to me. He's been putting some stickers up. I think one of them said it's okay to be white. This is deemed to be, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that, said the judge, whoever it was. Um, and so uh, they send out these little signals to everybody that there are certain things that we are not going to let you talk about. And, of course, I was just talking there earlier about this conscription idea with the British Army, but this is an aspect of the war that we're actually in, the war on ideas, the war on free thought, the war on, for us, you know, our people here in the UK – being able to support our people in the UK. This is to be demonised and oppressed, and that's really what they use the courts for. So, you know, I, I obviously share your passion for free speech, otherwise I wouldn't be here trying to exercise some of it and doing it probably more carefully than I would have done three or four years ago. Uh, and I'm probably going to sort of get it slightly wrong at times. It's almost, um, it's a very difficult sort of path to tread, knowing just what you're supposedly allowed to say. Um, I mean, prior to the publishing, Dave, did you have, were you experienced as an editor or as a 
copy proof or all those grindy things that book publishers have to get into or have to get covered? Is that something that you had a skill set in or was it something that you've acquired along the way? Yeah, no, I, I didn't. Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't really read my first book until I was in my mid to late 20s. So I avoided books. I didn't have any interest in them. And then one, I don't even remember when it was, but I picked up a, a history book, United States history book from, I guess I had it in uh, middle, junior high or middle school. And I picked it up and I just fell in love with history and with reading. I don't know what motivated me to do it, but it was fascinating. And from that point on, I, I just uh, read a lot. And I found that because I have uh, a pretty good attention to detail, when I, when I was reading over the years and decades, I, you know, would find errors and in books and I would just naturally highlight them. Right. And because of that, I would reach out to sometimes the authors and, you know, tell them, you know, Hey, Perhaps you'd be interested in, you know, what I found reading your excellent book. And uh, it developed into, uh, I guess, you know, not linearly, but uh, into radio. I, I got on radio and that, that's a whole nother story. But a lot of the interviews I did on radio, and this was uh, what's called terrestrial radio, right? Proper radio, so, you mean? Old-fashioned real radio, yeah? Yeah, like land-based radio. Like, yep. Uh, I would interview a lot of authors and read their books and then talk about their books. And, of course, sometimes, you know, let them, <laughs> you know, hey, look, there's these errors in here. Most books, I mean, there are very few books that don't have errors. I have come across literally you know, maybe two. Mm -hmm. and well, the error-free. Normal. The error-free. Error yeah. Yes, yeah. at least at least that I could pick up because yep. the issue with book editing, copy editing, is that the brain fills in so many spots that cause you to miss them. You know, I've worked with, with authors and they're as shocked as I, you know, didn't we go through this 15 times already? Yeah, we have. Mm -hmm. But how did we miss it? Well, that's why, because the brain fills it in. So I always had a good attention to detail. I think that's something that, you, you know, you are born with or born without. Yes. You know, when, when I was in the Navy, uh, my test scores uh, showed that I had a high attention to detail. <clears throat> and so based just on that, they assign you to, you know, a higher level of command. Right. So um, that's, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I was never a book guy, uh, but once I realized what it was all about, I mm -hmm. fell in love with it and just somehow got into this direction. 
Well, I mean, the thing about your attention to detail is, you know, we had uh, Dennis Wise was on here a few weeks ago. And just to let everybody know, he's going to be the guest next week uh, on next week's show. And of course, you are, uh, although this is not a book, you are the publisher now of his documentary series, um, you know, all of his video series, as it were. And um, I know that he has mentioned to me in rather excited tones how to describe it your uh your attention to detail which he's found at times quite what's the word what word should i use challenging <laughs> i think he said something like that so yeah i i did have sort of secondhand knowledge of your attention to detail but it's absolutely a must in this line of work that you're involved with isn't it because i guess you know those people that are against free speech or against certainly books that are going to question things that you're not supposed to question that that kind of stuff they will look for any sort of tiny little ten of inaccuracy on which to hang all sorts of completely nauseating arguments to try and stop the inquiry into areas that they don't want to have take place. Yeah, that's right. And when I do what I do, I just look for, obviously, grammatical errors, but also factual, you know, to the extent that I can. Yeah. Uh, and formatting errors. Now, the, the way that I approach it, and I, I think this is the right way to approach it, is that nothing is um, sacred. So if, for example, you know, you believed something all your life and you really wanted to believe it, but you found out that it wasn't true, uh, you should be quick to accept that and to uh, correct that particular matter. Yeah. And you know, I explained to the authors and the filmmakers that, you know, I, I don't think that this is true. And, you know, obviously it's here in the book or in the film. And, you know, I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And pretty much uh, all of them, um, once they realized that, you know, it, it might not be true, uh, showing them the evidence or the lack of evidence, uh, they agree that it should be stricken from the record. And, and it is, and that's the way to do it. So if I found out that something, as I said, something I, I believed in or believe in is not true, I'll be the first one to admit it. I, I don't hold, really, I don't hold anything dear except the truth. And I think we should all do that because then we wouldn't be burdened by whatever it is that's holding us down. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a tendency. Um, I have a tendency. I think a lot of people do. You get right, don't you, on certain points of uh, matter. You go, oh, no, I read this four years ago, and this is absolutely the case. And then something comes along. And this has happened to me countless times, and no doubt to many uh, listeners who have a similar disposition, most, most I would expect who uh, you're plowing through something else. Somebody says, yeah, have a look at this. And you find something in it that not necessarily fundamentally contradicts what you've held dear, but it's challenging because you suddenly have to go, ah, I might not have been right about that. We need to look at it. But slowly but surely, a clearer picture builds up. I mean, it's not for everybody to spend thousands of hours plowing through all sorts of research documents or whatever, but some people 
uh, I've gone through a period where I've done behaved like that. It's not been for the last few years. I sort of consciously stepped back from a lot of that because I thought my brain was going to melt, you know, acquiring all this kind of info and trying to check out whether I'm right or not. But, I mean, one thing that we can be right about is that most of the official history is is, is bunk, as Henry Ford said. It's not right. And uh, Napoleon's quote that, you know, history is a set a set of lies agreed upon is also true. I've, just to, Let's just throw in a question as well from the chat here, Dave, as well. This is sort of just going back to where we were on publishing. Exo Wright says, can we ask if Dave thinks that by 2024, the world is a better or worse place given the growth and domination of Amazon simply on a book publishing level? What do you think about that? Well, I thought that last year was going to be good for our side, which is what I consider to be the side of truth. Yeah. And I thought that this year would be better. So I think if we look at uh, how far we've progressed, that let, let's use that field analogy that I like to, right? A football field or a soccer field, whatever it might be, and we're moving the ball down the field. Where we have moved the ball down the field from... 2020 or in 2023 where we have gotten to that whatever that line is right let's say we're at the i mean i think it's safe to say we're at the 20 yard line right so okay we're we're in our territory right now okay yep all right now i know it's it's a little different but you, you guys don't have football at all, right? Like, uh, well, I tell regular, you, it's interesting. Uh, Football's been coming up today. I've had a few people fire questions me about because it's the super duper duper bowl, isn't it? This weekend, isn't it? You know, super duper pooper duper uh, bowl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the stupid Fantastic. bowl. Yeah, the stupid bowl. Yeah, yes. and I think I mentioned yeah, last exactly. week. Exactly. I don't even know it was going on, Dave. Actually, I'd completely. I, they they started promoting American football here in the UK on Channel Four in the early nineteen eighties. I think it was the early 80s, because I remember seeing it on TV back then. It might have even been the late 70s. It's when the, uh, the Washington Redskins, look at me and my sad brain. The Washington Redskins quarterback at the time was a guy called Joe Theismann. I don't know if that sure. rings a bit. And yeah, I remember seeing him get this horrific break. Somebody knelt on his calf, and it cracked his lower leg, and it just buckled yes. inwards. And I went... Hey, that's daft. And um, and I thought, I bet that bloody hurts, you know, because he wasn't in a fit. And they had also a running back called John Riggs, was it? Or was it Riggs? I think it was something like that. He was yes. ancient. He'd yes. been running into people all his life, and he looked as though he had. And so they were kind of trying to sell it to a British audience. And I think for the first few years, it was very engaging because it was an alien sport to us in every single – although it kind of looked like rugby. It's not like rugby. Um, although a lot of rugby players, I think, over here, certainly at international level, some ex-English captains are massive fans of American football. Um, so it's been coming up, and uh, there's a you know, there's a little thread later on when we talk about uh, some recent events. I'll, I'll bring it probably back into the conversation. But it's kind of known now. I mean, they put big games on at the Tottenham uh, football ground, which is more than a football ground. It's like a super sports stadium now, and they can change the pitch. They've got two pitches on sort of one's below the other one, and they can bring other pitches up. So, So you think we're 20 yards down the field from zero, and there's 80 yards to go. That's what you're. That's what you're telling us. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. <clears throat> and and I, you know, I might be generous there with the twenty, but I feel like we 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 have gained that ground. 
And when I say we, I mean all of us, mm -hmm. disparately, predominantly, but all of us in doing what we have been doing, some for a lot longer than I have, um, and, and some who are just now coming into this realm, because I hear the stories all the time from the phone calls we get yep. and the emails, you know, how excited they are to be able to get this material, uh, to thank us for providing the material and how they got there to this point. So I think that if we're on the 20 yard line and we're driving, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're still driving. We have the ball. We're on offense right now. Okay. If, if we are, and I think we are, we're not going to get sacked behind that 20-yard line. The quarterback is not going to get tackled, and we're going to lose ground. I don't think we can lose ground from this point. Right. I think we can only gain ground. Yeah. And that, I think, is really important because just that one concept itself, if somebody thinks, well, I mean— and, and this used to be last year. I mean, prior to the probably the last quarter of 2023, there were still a, predominantly a lot of naysayers because I had seen that, you know, we were progressing and good things were happening. And most of the folks that, who I communicate with, nah, yeah, I don't think so, you know. We're not, we're not really uh, making any ground. And then in that last quarter, I heard those same folks then change their tune. So they even saw it. So I think 2024 is going to be better. It's already starting out good. Yeah, it's I, think, be I agree with you. Better. I agree. Yes. Yeah. And I think we're going to pick up another significant amount of yardage. And I don't think that Amazon or anyone else, any of these huge multinational big tech companies are going to be able to have an impact on what we're doing. And when I say we again, I, I don't mean us, me, and, and the team that surrounds me or the team that works with me and I work with that team. I mean, we in the sense of the individuals who uh, would be interested in in the books we have are generally interested not in what motivates most of humanity, but they're interested in the truth, what they consider to be the truth, because they're they're really turned off by, uh, as you mentioned earlier about um, the uh, let's say the conventional, um, you know, wisdom or the conventional beliefs of folks uh, perpetrated or disseminated by, you know, like you can call it the deep state, you can call it the mainstream media, you can call it, you know, whatever you want. But when 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 these when these folks are confronted with such obvious you know misinformation and disinformation all they want is that all they want to do is just read what they consider to be the truth that's it you know they don't want to be told 
you know, the stuff that they're being told when to them it's so obvious that that's not the case. And, and I believe doing this as long as I have, and again, it's relative, of course, but doing this as long as I have, I believe that most of what we're told by the powers who should not be, it's actually the opposite of the truth. And even though that sounds absurd, I found that it actually plays out in real life that, you know, this country or this, this person is, that's the bad country. That's the bad guy. When in reality, it's the opposite. And it, and, and, and it covers an entire spectrum of topics that you can actually hear what they're saying. Well, you can look at a newspaper online or look at a report online and they'll tell you right in the beginning in the, in the lead, right. That, you know, well, you know, talk about, let's say Donald Trump or January 6th or, you know, Nelson Mandela or whatever it is. And they will reveal to you what their spin is on this particular matter. Yes. And when you've looked at this stuff enough, you can pick that up and then you can then put it down because there's no reason to, because they've revealed themselves. You know what they're trying to do. You know what they want. And the good news is there's so many smart folks who are aware of that now. And that's why I'm saying I'm very, very positive about this year, uh, that it's going to be even better than 2023. So let's say we're going to get to the 50 yard line. I mean, that would be phenomenal. I don't know how it's going to unfold. Obviously, uh, none of us do, you know, we're not, we don't have a crystal ball, but I think we're going to have another great year in the sense of being able to tell the people who sadly run the world that, you know, we're really not interested in your vaccine. We're not interested in your media. We're not interested in the politicians who need my vote. You know, we're interested in other things. And I think they're going to get the message. I I agree with everything you've said. Uh, there's just been, I don't know whether you, you're supposed to go on your feelings, but I think you have to at times. And mine have been, ever since this year started, there's just, I've felt different. I, I've, caught, I've looked back at myself. Whenever a new year has started, certainly when I was younger, I would just sort of make out, this is going to be a fantastic year. You know, I would sort of like big myself up about the whole thing. And maybe by March or April, I decided it wasn't going to be as great as I thought it was. But there's something solid about what's happening in all sorts of spaces. I'm, I'm working just as hard as I have done over the past few years. And yet there's other things that are happening. There's sort of creativity building up. There's more connections being made, you know, just in the general, certainly for me personally, there is. And um, I also think it seems to be uh, in direct proportion to the amount of pressure they're putting on us. I think the pressure that they're seeking to put on is going up. And I think as it does, it's a bit like um, as they grip us tighter, we're squeezing out of the gaps in their fingers faster. There's something that they can't get a hold of. And I think we're learning to be uncontrollable incrementally and more and more people are sort of aligning themselves with this. I think I may have told you, I certainly mentioned it here on the show a few weeks ago. Um, of course, I have copies of most of the books 
that you publish. Uh, I've not read them all, of course, and uh, including the ones by Ken Carter, who was, uh, I think, as you know, he's a guest on here a few weeks ago. So, of course, a little theme's been building up recently around here, where I've had a, you know, one of one of your stable of writers here, and then we've had Dennis on, and that you're here, and uh, there are many others that I would like to talk to. You know, there's there's other books in there, and the authors uh, will be a great conversation. But it's all building up, and I uh, on on Boxing Day. Um, I had these books out with a group of friends, people who are relatively new to this field of inquiry, i.e. three or four years, and most of them, which is a good thing, brought in by an instinctive repulsion over the vaccine nonsense, which has um, now led on to many, many other things, and it's extremely encouraging to see it. I mean, you know, I sound like some sort of wizened old bloke about the whole thing, but when you've been around this sort of field of study for a long time, and I have, I just happen to be a person that's been around it for an awful long time, um, it's really encouraging to see that there are ways to get these messages across to people who five or six years ago wouldn't have given it the time of day, and understandably so, you know, because it's some of these topics that that have to be brought up are alarming to to certain ears, to sort of, you know, neophyte ears. They go, what? No, we can't really talk about that. You know, we, we can't really do it. There's a little quote here, by the way, Dave, from Eric. Uh, a good, I'm just going to read out from the chat. Eric. Eric von Essex, his real name, of course, uh, says, historically, censorship is a sign of desperation, which is absolutely true. The more censorship they impose, the more we are seeing the elite losing grip on control. I think that's, broadly speaking, that's pretty true. Um, and uh, so, you know, the themes that you're addressing here about where we're at and where things are going, I don't think it's even the 20-yard line that's the important thing. I think there's something about the substance of the team behind the 20-yard line that's encouraging. And looking around, it's like there are more players on the field or there's, we've got more substitutes or more to bring on. We've got a bigger squad to play with, you know, and some people are stepping up and, and taking the ball and others, are, it'll be their turn next week or whatever it is. So it's, it's really encouraging. Now, just yes. for a quick change, of, just for a quick change of pace. When we had, uh, when we, when I have people on, this has not been planned at all. But over the past few weeks, what's happened is I've just asked guests if they would like to select a piece of music for the show, and you have selected one, haven't you? And I think it's about that time. We've just gone past the top of the hour, so I'm going to play your track, and then we'll have a very deep interrogation as to why you chose it. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting because you've got a lot to talk about on this one. So. Here's Dave's pick for today, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. Stop, look and listen, baby, that's my philosophy. Yes, it is now. It's called rubbernecking, baby, but that's all right with me. Stop, look and listen, baby, that's my philosophy. Yes, it is now. It's called rubbernecking, baby. 
Attention all listeners, are you seeking uninterrupted access to WBN 324 Talk Radio despite incoming censorship hurdles? Well, it's a breeze. Just grab and download Opera Browser, then type in WBN324.ZIL. And stay tuned for unfiltered discussions around the clock. That's WBN324.ZIL. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on the World Broadcasting Network are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of its owners, partners and other hosts or this network. Thank you for listening to WBN 324 Talk Radio. And welcome back to part two. We're into the second hour here. I'm here on paulenglishlive.com. As I said, we're here every Thursday. And my guest this week is Dave Gahari, the publisher at Money Tree Publishing. And Dave, that was your song. And what is the backstory about you choosing Rubbernecking, a song I'd never heard before. Right, I never heard that really? one. No, I never heard it. Did you it. like it? How did you like it? Well, it's too short. It's not long enough, is it? Yes. I think there is an extended version of it, but... Is there? Yeah. Yeah. And not just extended, but, you know, enhanced. There really was no reason uh, why I picked that song. Um, I think I just gravitated toward Elvis because... Dennis Wise had selected <laughs> the, the Elvis song. I a, thought, is this an Elvis yeah. competition? Right, I'm picking an Elvis right. track. It'll be on next week. He gets to pick another one, you know. So cool. he's going to send him an Elvis show if we don't watch it. It's fantastic. I, I don't mind. Yeah, and I, and I like Elvis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, you know, when Elvis died on August 16th, 1977, yep. I was 17. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Elvis. And really? Of course, this was yeah nothing. I knew nothing about Elvis. This was—I mean, I knew who he was, but I—I I don't, you know, I may have heard the song that he did in the seventies, the early seventies, I think it was, uh, "Burning Love." I mean, yeah, that that's a good one. Much, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that was my pretty much, you know, everything I knew about Elvis. And then when he when I saw that he died, of course, this was pre-internet, pre, you know, cell phones. I think cell phones might have existed, but not, they weren't mass. They were the ones that killed you, Dave. They were ones that were the size of a brick, and people used to get nosebleeds in London walking around with them going, oh, I think I'll be all right. (laughs) Well, it melted half their head. Yeah, it was that era. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So there was nothing. And so we had a television in our home, and... In the that family room that it was in, it was on at the time, and I guess they broke uh, through, you know, a special news bulletin or whatever it might have been. Mm-hmm. They said that, 
And I had a friend in high school and his brother I knew was a huge Elvis fan. And again, to me, Elvis was, you know, just something that, you know, was a person. He was the king of rock and roll and that was it. And so I remember I picked up the phone to call him to tell him so he could tell his brother that Elvis died. Of course, it was it was that type of communication. Yeah. Fascinating mm-hmm. when you think about now. Yeah. And re- after he died, then I started to listen to his music. Right. And I was, you know, really uh, entranced by it. It was just like, wow, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sing along to to music I do. and then someone that's, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. we all do, right? We yes. all do. We should yes. do. It's what it's for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And I had heard, you know, wow, you, you know, you sound like Elvis, you, you know, when you, when you're singing. And so uh-uh. I kind of, yeah, I know. So I kind <laughs> of, we go. you know, yeah. And, and that's how it happened. So I would, you know, when I was going out to bars, uh, I would, you know, do Elvis songs. And when I was in the Navy and I was, one of the places I was stationed was in Hawaii in Pearl Harbor you know, Honolulu, Waikiki, and that yeah. was a big part of Elvis. I would go to a bar there with my buddies and then get up on the stage and, you know, do an Elvis song or two. It was, remember, it was Harry's Underwater Bar. So not that I have a, a, a any anything of a voice compared to the king, uh, but it was fun. So mm-hmm. uh, that was a part of my life uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s. Of course, I don't do it anymore. Uh, but, oh, uh, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Thank you very on. much. No, no. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. we've got to get you to do some Elvis voiceovers for things. I mean, no. This, oh, that's, that's, that's I don't know if I could do it nowadays, but it was fun. It really was. It was fun. And uh, he was a great American success story. And I think that is one, one of the reasons for his, you know, ongoing uh, allure is that here, you know, and I've been to Elvis's, I've been to Graceland a couple of right. times, yep. traveling across the country. I've been to the home he grew up in, in um, Tupelo, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that, you know, here was just a regular American. And yep. look what he did, you know. And, and you know what? We can all do that, all right? We, we don't all have the talent that this individual had and he Mm -hmm. had a whole hell of a lot of of talent, but we all can do whatever we want to do. If we put our minds to it, I believe that. Yes. And we all have the ability in this country now, and that gets back to the freedom of speech thing. You know, it is sadly ironic that it was your ancestors who created this country. And now you are chafing under mm. the uh, regime, uh, regimes, uh, we could say regime or regimes there in your country, not being able to even, um, you know, send uh, messages around the internet or put up stickers that are based on government statistics, uh, that you're actually being threatened with jail and being thrown into jail. Yeah. Uh, so I think Elvis represents. Um, the, you know, the frontier, uh, the freedom, the dreams that all of us can have, that this, 
this Southern kid who grew up in really abject poverty yeah. could rise to and remain, you know, literally like one of the most recognizable names and images in the history of the modern world. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I mean, I had a sort of, amb my view of him has changed a lot. It wasn't particularly cool to like Elvis in England in the 70s. It wasn't a thing. He was deemed to be part of a sort of, I don't know, he wasn't Frank Sinatra, but he was just after that. However, good friend of mine, who was a really good guitar player, his father had um, played jazz guitar, because I used to go around to his house. And so he was into all the big swing bands, and he used to play all that. He had this fantastic record collection. They had a really expensive hi-fi. I was very impressed by this. And and sometimes when we were around at his house, if his dad wasn't in, uh, he would stick rec his records on and crank it up. You know, this is when we're about 16, 17, 18. Fantastic fun. And uh, he had quite a few Elvis records. And uh, he always was always playing Heartbreak Hotel, which I didn't particularly care for at the time. Um, but then... Uh, as I started listening to more and more sort of music, I became aware of Scotty Moore, the guitar player uh, with Elvis in the early days, you know, out of um, Sun Records, all this kind of stuff. And he was fantastic. And then the thing that changed my view of Elvis completely was uh, the NBC, I think it was, comeback special in 1968 or 67. You know that one? I'm assuming, yeah, you know, yeah, where he was yeah, all in black know, leather. Was it NBC? Yeah, okay. I don't know. Or CB, yes. I don't know. It was the I, CBS I just, or something. Yeah, yes. one of those. The Elvis's comeback special. He'd been the away. Sixty-eight. Or yeah, the yeah. sixty-eight comeback special. Yep, that's right. He'd been kind of out of the limelight for a couple of years. All these sort of English bands have been rocking up, you know, with long hair, looking like women and stuff like this. But some good stuff as well. I don't want to be completely scared. And there was some really interesting stuff. And so he was deemed, I suppose, a bit passe and had lost it. But the, that TV special that he did, he's. It's absolutely sensational. I couldn't believe how good he was um, because yes. it's it's him singing acoustically, doing many of his hits, him playing the guitar, just singing, absolutely singing with the, no overdubs, nothing, you know, proper performing, and the, ba the the all the guys around him and the way that they played those songs and his singing is just fantastic. And I went, ah, got it now. It, I sort of now I see what people were banging on about because he'd done a lot of records in the sixties and all those really terrible films actually they, they weren't particularly interesting to me that had gone sort of middle of the road and a bit bland but then you know we went back to listen to all these early recordings with sun records they're absolutely fantastic stuff i mean it's really just high-powered stuff for the time i mean it must have blown people's minds i think thinking back to it so i just went wow and he was the other thing that really got me as well is he was just uh, as we say over here, he was taking the piss out of himself. He was really having a good time, and he was mocking himself and some of his gestures and things that, you know, had become part of his imprint. He was he was taking the mickey out of himself doing those things. So I, I just went, yeah, great. I, how old was he when he died then? He was 42. You know? So I'm the same age as you. So we're 17. I heard it announced on uh, on a radio station at the time in a rather scathing way by a guy called John Peel. He sort of was a bit dismissive about it because he was playing a lot of punk rock stuff. Um, and I, I remember thinking someone that old was just like granddad. I remember thinking yeah. that at 17, you know, what, 40-odd? That's just a million miles away. What's right. that about? Did you think, I used to think like that. God, you're over 30. You must, you're ancient. You know, that's what you think like when you're a teenager. Um, exactly. But yeah, a top talent, really seriously top yeah, and, talent. Yeah, and, and you were right. It was NBC. Look at this. Mm -hmm. It was Dece It was Tuesday, December 3rd, mm -hmm. 
NBC TV in color. Yeah. At 9 p.m. Eastern time. So they put it on, I guess, you know, so perhaps the, the kids, because the kids, most of the kids would be asleep. Yeah. Because they had school the next day. So mm -hmm. they put it on at 9 p.m. Um, and yeah, it was, and I, I don't remember seeing that. I was probably one of those kids, you know, asleep because we were, uh, we were eight. Yeah. And so we were asleep, uh, because we had to get up early for school. Yeah. Uh, so I don't remember seeing it. I'm sure I didn't, but I have seen, uh, bits and pieces of it. And what a, just an unbelievable presence yes. that this guy had. He did. Um, yeah, it was charming. Unreal. It was wow yeah just absolutely. electrifying yeah it was just it was just self-confidence on steroids and not arrogant with it either it was just tremendous um yes i, I mean i ended up playing music in uh, sort of r&b music sort of from texas and things like that in my late teen years early 20s both in uh yorkshire where i was still then and also when i came down to london i ended up meeting musicians at this company and we we had a great time and one of the songs we actually ended up singing an elvis song which turned out to be my favorite elvis song of them all which is big hunker love it's an absolute blazing track and uh we listened to this and we just really kept on revving it up as you do but it was just fantastic i don't think i could sing that now either because some of the notes are too high <laughs> yeah you know and you just go right drat i can't i can't hit those notes anymore you know but uh that was a lot of fun yeah great so we've just turned it into a music yes. show tonight dave it's okay exactly it's fine. i don't but, mind. He, but listen to this it's fine listen <laughs> yeah. to this um the the that's special right mm -hmm. that 68 comeback special yeah it became the most watched show yeah of the television season earning 42 percent of the audience yeah and it relaunched, of course, his singing career. It did. And uh, not to spend the whole show on Elvis. I don't mind. I'll go in any direction you want to. It's your show. I know I'm the guest, but I'm just saying it really, I, I mean, <clears throat> I could talk about anything. But if, of course, this is for the folks all over the world. Uh, if you happen to be in America, it's funny. The first time I went to Graceland, I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And... This is Memphis, Tennessee, on, I think, Elvis Presley Boulevard. Um, how many of us have uh, roads named after us, right? Yeah. Uh, major roads. Um, you you really want to, you know, put that down on your itinerary. Right. You need to see Graceland. It's fat. It's, it's, a, it's fascinating what, you know, what this guy has done. And the tour itself is just incredible. Okay, one day maybe I'll get to see it. it. It wouldn't have appealed to me if you'd have spoken to me 20 years ago, but now it probably does. I remember, yes. last bit on Elvis for now, there, there's a British yes. comedian over here whose name I've currently forgotten, but he went on the tour. I can't remember his name. He's very good, very bright sort of guy, but he's not He's not been on TV for many years. He went on the tour to Gracelands and went round, and he noticed that obviously they've kept it all pretty much as it was on the day that he shuffled off this mortal coil. And uh, he noticed in the, that there was a video collection, Betamax or VHS tapes, because video players were the things. And he noticed that one of the videos that he had was Monty Python's The Holy Grail. And he just couldn't get his head around the idea of Elvis, this you know, icon of pure Americana was watching this rather eccentric British comedy troupe, which is what it was. And uh, the, so, you know, the, the 
the the um, the clash, as it were, the contrast between the two cultures was was writ large in that video collection. He thought so. I always I've remembered that. I've not been, of course, but uh, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Hopefully, you can make it there one day. Yeah, well, it's a good job Dennis didn't call him because he'll be just you know it'll be just you and him doing Elvis songs all night. Really, I don't know what. Yeah. We would, <laughs> I don't know what else we would do. It's fine. Yeah, Dennis anyway, is a big Elvis fan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's got some he's got some hidden communications still to make, I'm sure, about things. So we'll we'll we might get a few out of him next week or whatever. Okay, so uh, that's that's a very long musical interlude. That lasted twenty yes, minutes. Yes, and we're, we're not gonna know where to go from Elvis from Grace. I don't know what to do now, Dave. I'm lost. Right, I'm completely, exactly. Right. I'm Let's compl- play another Elvis song. <laughs> We could do. Actually, somebody did request another song, a Beach Boys song, which may come up. But right. I've got another awesome. one to play as well. Yeah, yeah, I've got another one to play. Something a bit more. Actually, I think now might be the time to just bring this up as well. So we're just going to something. Um, we've been talking about people, obviously, that um, question things, people that have developed a following for doing that, and the problems and challenges they have as writers and publishers and communicators, which... Many people who've, you know, stepped into this space will be aware of, you know, we have independent publishers such as yourself, we have a lot of independent websites or have had, they're trying to scoop those up. I mean, you know, one of the processes has been to get everybody on so-called social networking, which I'm not a big fan of, because to me, it's just nowhere near as much fun as news groups and sending emails with people that you actually know. That's still the, my main work uh, using this technology is to do that and i suspect it's it's most everybody else's but uh you and i both know of and i think many listeners here will know and they might not be aware of this uh, sad piece of news but um a writer who's who basically was a sports writer so you know when you were talking about american football earlier um he actually made his living as a i don't know whether it was associated press or something like that but he was an established writer on major newspapers in the states for a long time and then 9-11 came along and he developed a whole series of questions that really ruffled his feathers. He probably wouldn't phrase it like that. Um, but John Kaminsky, um, who has been a champion of inquiring into some of the toughest areas that you could look into and has been very strong in it, I'm, I'm very sad to announce that unfortunately John uh, shuffled off this mortal coil on Monday of this week, as far as we know, the 5th of February, um, peacefully we've been informed in his sleep he was uh, 79 years of age he was born in 1944 and uh, he's going to leave some big shoes to fill he was uh, uh, always had something to say and could rub people up the wrong way at times including me I'd spoken to him quite a few times but he also had a great chuckle and a laugh there was always something going on with him uh, and he was active I think even up to the point of last week and and just to bring my last little comment in for now I know that a very good friend of his um, uh, Patriot Pat uh, if you're hearing this uh, I know how you must be feeling because I'd spoken to Patriot Pat as well about a year and a half ago very close friends he's he's obviously uh, devastated by this because they were very close buddies but one communication that has come through is that the Stupor Bowl which is on this Sunday has got John's team in it and he was very much looking forward to seeing the game and that's the San Francisco 49ers so John, uh, although you're not hearing this down here in this realm, if you are hearing it, uh, maybe you'll still get to see the game. I don't know how it works out after you've shuffled off this model coil. Maybe they give you a few less sort of uh, bonus bonus events or whatever. But yeah, John Kaminsky, rest in peace, John. And uh, I knew him a little, not as well as others. And uh, I enjoyed my time with him, including the little disputes along the way. They were all 
constructive and good. So I don't know if you've got anything you want to say, Dave, about him. Yeah, it's always sad when, you know, you lose someone from our side. Yes. Uh, someone who was well aware of uh, what we're facing, you know, the enemy, really. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've seen, sadly, in the little bit over 20 years, uh, well, let's see, this is 2024, so 25 years I've been in this, as I said, realm I've seen uh, a lot of people uh, pass on who uh, were, were, were quite young. John wasn't young. You said he was 77, right? 79. Um, 79, 79, I'm sorry. Yeah. 79. Uh, that, that's a good long life. Um, you know, we, we, we've been losing, losing folks over the past uh, about 10 years. That's when uh, I noticed it happening. Uh, some born the same year we were we were born yep uh some before uh and a few after so it's it's always um it's always uh, not a good thing to see people who could not just understand what we're up against but who could also uh disseminate that information to you know a, the wider public so absolutely yeah it, it's yeah, sad it to see that it is. Now, I spoke to a good friend of his. I'm going to play a track now. Apparently, he was um, his main listening material was classical music. And uh, so I've got a classical music track here. This is a B-mix. This has been uh, remixed, as was the other one by uh, Paul Beaner. Thanks, Paul, if you're hearing and tuned in. Thanks for the B-mix on Rubbernecking. This is complete contrast to that and a little bit more dramatic, but I think in keeping with this announcement, this runs for about five minutes. You'll all know what it is. If you don't, I'll tell you afterwards. Here we go.
And that was, of course, The Ride of the Valkyrie by Wagner. And uh, that's the send-off music from me and from Paul English Live to John Kaminsky, who, um, as we were just saying before that piece of music, uh, shuffled off this mortal coil on Monday this week. Godspeed, John, and uh, hope things all turn out wherever you may be, because it's still a mystery to all of us, no matter what people say. Well, now, I don't know about that. Remember? I had a near-death experience, so... All right, I'd forgotten they, about you. Yeah, they call that. it an NDE. Yes. So, yeah, I've actually died twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, you know, I'm hard to kill. But the first time, I did have a near-death experience, and if that is accurate, mm-hmm. then John is in another dimension. Yeah. And it's a dimension that doesn't require... Uh, any uh, talk, any vocalization, it's nonverbal communication, and it, it, obviously it's not required, the talk, and he's with his loved ones, uh, he's with his family, and uh, it's funny, you know, I wasn't able to dream for several months after I had that accident, and right. that near-death experience happened right after I died. Um, and I, I like to think that it's accurate. Although I have heard, uh, you know, other folks who have had the NDEs, uh, that, uh, they've experienced something different, which is interesting. Uh, but what I experienced was seeing the only relative who I knew who had passed, and he passed on the same year Elvis did, right? Nineteen seventy-seven. My my maternal grandfather, and right. I, uh, you know, I saw him, and he was there to greet me. 
to either tell me to, you know, to welcome me or tell me to uh, leave that you're, you know, it's not your time, which of, of course I, I have no idea uh, what it was, but I, I absolutely believe that it was a near death experience. And if it was, as I said, then John is, John is comfortable, no pain, Mm -hmm. uh, and just goodness and happiness, which is what I think most of us, uh, in a normal state of mind, wish for ourselves and for everyone else. I think you're absolutely spot on. I always leave that sort of topic open-ended, so I I don't commit, but I've got pretty clear views about it myself and but i don't i didn't want to sort of impose them upon the audience really but what you've said was fantastic i uh, it's interesting i was i was over at somebody's house yesterday i actually do get out once every 18 months or something and uh, yeah. uh, there was a guy there talking about just this thing and also about uh, terminal lucidity how about that? When people are near the end, they sometimes acquire a very high level of lucid thinking, really real clarity. Um, so all of these, the aspects of, of where the mind is, uh, I'm of the view that it's not in the brain. I, I've, I tend to view the brain, sorry to keep stretching the radio thing all over the place, but like a radio receiver. And you tune it into fields of thought, and you sort of train it that way. So, because I, I don't know how much hard disk space I've got in my actual head, they say there's a few trillion neurons in there or billions of the th- things. So, right. uh, but Dave, if they, if it's non-verbal communication, what am I going to do? I mean, how are we supposed to get on? There won't be any radio up there. It's going to be anyway. I'm, you don't need it. I it's know. just uh, yeah. It's just really. It's pretty incredible. It's mm-hmm. you know you could just tell what somebody is saying without without them saying it and it's just an you know like i said again if it's accurate mm-hmm. it's just an advanced uh dimension you know the dimension is so advanced that it doesn't need all of these things that we might be saddled with or that we're we're stuck with um, yes. it's just it ju- you're just there you exist in that state, and you you can uh, know more about um, you know what we're all trying to figure out about uh, just because you're there. So it's not like uh, you know. I, at least again, what I what I saw, and I think it is real. It's not like you know you're you're greeted by someone who's going to open up the pearly gates, and uh, you know there's violins and so on playing, and there's clouds. It was actually dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, again, I think it's just another dimension, but uh, a, a higher dimension, where uh, you know pain is something that you know personally I've lived with for many decades, and I know a lot of people who go through pain. Yes, and it's a, it really is a horrible thing, and some people go through so much pain that they really don't want to experience anymore, and they and their lives, you know, whether it's physical or mental. I, th- I think what, what stands out to me about what I experienced is that there's no pain. It's painless. It's just, mm-hmm. as you use that word, proper. It's proper. It's proper. 
Yeah. Well, it reminds me of that phrase, the peace that passeth all understanding. And you're right about this. I mean, is not all this inquiry into all these material, all this, the mess down here, the fact that obviously the wrong people are in charge from our perspective, in fact, from any honourable perspective, people with the wrong intentions, the psychopathic mentality, the ones that have become totally focused on control and not on peace. Uh, it causes you, causes me, it probably causes a lot of people to consider more fully, you know, the whole, that entire area. Maybe it's just a thing that occurs naturally in life. There's no rush. I wasn't in any rush with this when I was young, and I don't think that that was a mistake. I think, obviously, when you're, when you're fresh in your body down here, and you're just full of beans, there's, it's amazing. I still can't work it, it out. It actually gets more amazing to me as each day passes. I actually physically do less in terms of just running around and jumping and doing things. I don't ride motorbikes or anything like that. Not that I'd be against that kind of stuff. It's just not been like that for me for the last few years. But it's almost like that's not necessary. There's another richness sort of builds up. We do sound like a couple of old lags here, don't we? Well, I do anyway. <laughs> so, well, but, nah. it's, but it's good. It comes in time. I mean, it, it, it's fascin- it is fascinating. Yes. That what you consider being old age is going to be a bit dull. It's not like that. I mean, or, uh, in advancing years. No. Something... But we're not old. That's no, we're not. Not yet. No, no, that's next yeah. week. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. But you were saying something. I cut you off. Go yeah, I don't know. I don't know what something. I was saying. Well, just something else ah. comes in. Another sort of consideration about life. And I found it's, in, as like I was saying earlier about things getting worse and therefore that being encouraging to me for some reason that doesn't appear to be logical at first as it gets worse it is it's boosted my appreciation for everything i've been given up to this point including the pain and i've had quite a bit and not like you have necessarily but everybody gets their cross to carry there's you know no one's got a kind of skirmish free life struggle is part of the mix down here um and it just is. It's designed that way, and I have to. I work on the basis that there's a reason for it. There's some kind of stress testing. We're getting polished up, and sometimes the polisher's cloth is very hard, and it hurts, and uh, you can't figure things out. And you see a lot of people sulking. Why doesn't God sort this out and do that? But you know, my view on all that kind of stuff is that He's already sorted it out. He's set it up. There you go. You're on your own now. Learn, and it can be harsh at yeah. times, as you well know. Um, yes, I, I think I, I agree with that absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is a there is a reason for what we're going through. Yeah. And we have the ability, many of us have the ability to see that. And mm. not that we are, you know, any great seers or anything else, but once you've struggled through a certain amount of things, and people have struggled physically, I mean, uh, people have been gotten bad breaks. I mean, I know some of those some of those people, bad breaks. I mean, just yes. bad luck, you know? I mean, my life relative to many of those folks is a is a pampered life uh, where I didn't have to struggle the way that these folks did. Just bad luck. Yes. Um, but we have to be cognizant of that. And I, I just want to go back to Elvis because I was, just briefly, I was thinking about, you, <laughs> you know. Can. You can go back to Elvis any time you like. I, I can't get away from it. I, yeah. I was thinking about the, you know, the whole magical aspect of this guy and, you know, the the wisdom uh, that was imparted by him. Even Probably he didn't even realize he was. But I remember uh, one, one of the things he said was that, or one of the sayings that I heard that he said was, 
you know, don't, don't, somebody was saying something about someone and, and Elvis said, don't, don't criticize that man, son. You ain't never stood in his shoes. Yep. And something as simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all, you know, have our uh, mannerisms and, and, and the way that we might respond to something or the way that we might approach something. But if you just take a step back and say, yeah, you really can't judge somebody because you don't know what is going through their heads. You know, it, even just you know, seeing a guy walking down the street or walking past you and you look at the, at the guy or the, or the, or the girl and you come to a, a judgment about just the way they look, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, something happens that proves you wrong, that your initial feeling about that individual was completely wrong. Yes. And they were doing that, whatever they were doing, for a reason that made you look at what happened as, wow, what an idiot I am. And I think, you know, we all need to take a step back and realize that we can't criticize anyone because we haven't been in their shoes. Now, that's easy to say. Of course, life as it is here on planet Earth, you know, the realities of that and all of our shortcomings, all of our individual shortcomings prevent that from happening. But it's good to to hear Elvis's words of wisdom and take a step back and take from that what you will. Spot on. Absolutely. Spot on. I think, um, yeah, that does happen. It's always a bit embarrassing when you've sussed someone out wrong and then they say something and disprove you. <laughs> but I, it, the thing is, you can't help doing it, and I think you should do it. You know, there's that phrase from Scripture that has been mistranslated, as far as I'm aware, where they say, don't judge lest you end up being judged. But the full quote, the accurate thing is, judge wisely lest ye too suffer bad judgment. It's a completely different hue to it. And you're going to judge. So the the idea of learning wisdom is to judge more effectively tomorrow than you did today. That seems a worthwhile and containable goal. I can live with that. I can accept, you know, I've been wrong about a lot of things. because you get attached to being right. Your mind does. I'm right about this. Yeah, and so, so what? You know, what difference is yes. that really going to make? You know, how are you treating other people? These things. The sorts of things that never come into your head when you're 17. They oh, just don't. God. And they shouldn't oh, either. They shouldn't come into your head when you're 17. No, or even they when you're shouldn't. 20. They shouldn't. You, you, you know, you, you, you start off with a basic toolkit and you go, right, your job is to sort of finish it off, really. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to, you are going to mess it up. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. You are because you won't yeah, learn otherwise. Absolutely. You know, so it's, it's, it's that thing about, you know, it's only a mistake if you keep repeating it. So, you know, the first thing to do is to try and wake up to your own weaknesses and foibles. And that takes many years. I haven't got any weaknesses. Really? No, no I can see. Or you'll start to see them. Don't worry. They'll come along, you know, because you'll need a few lessons knocking into you and all that kind of Amazing stuff. Amazing how perfect we are at that age, right? 17. Yep. 17, the year Elvis died. The year my grandpa died, right? We, we didn't know anything, right? And now we've come to this, to this particular uh, place in time, you and I, mm-hmm. and we're here, and it just feels like we're supposed to be here. And I think that that's something that, you know, you might have been alluding to 
about you know oh we you know we're, we sound like a couple of uh, old uh, <laughs> you know, fuddy duddies yep. yes uh, but we are supposed to be here at this time it's cra- I, it's crazy I feel that and I think you do too I do seem like an exceptional time I mean maybe every generation says that but I don't remember my parents saying that when they were my age that's not that sort of atmosphere in the world didn't exist i mean this is you know post world war 2 not that my parents were 60 just after world war 2 they were quite young you know but i remember growing up there wasn't this sort of talk around i could, and and i guess you know to a great degree that's because i've mentioned this before these topics and questions that you ask on topics people didn't even know these topics existed let alone to ask a question about them it wasn't in your it wasn't on the menu the menu had been set pretty firmly by your ed- so-called education, the corralling of your mind. You know, go, you're going to think down this channel and this channel because industry needs you to be good at maths and good at English or this, that, and the other, or science. And it's got its own rewards. I'm not knocking it completely. You've got to do something. Um, and you know, but the inquiry, it doesn't really matter what constraints. I don't think ultimately what constraints are played on, placed upon you. If your attitude is right, if you're committed to being alive as opposed to complying pointlessly with things you get to find out and that's a struggle and it's meant to be a struggle because I think in the process of struggling it's where the value comes in then you begin to recognize what's really true because it hurt you in the acquisition of that knowledge it was rough there's something you had to overcome and it's not a particularly nice message is it I remember someone telling me that when I was about 25 oh it's going to be full of struggle and toughness and you know it's going to be miserable for huge parts of your life what I don't want to hear that I'm 25 right <laughs> right um yes and I- and, of course, some people get more than their fair share of bad things. It's like that thing, you know, bad things do happen to good people. And you go, why? why? You know, what's – and yet this is – you know, to put it into perspective, it is a small amount of time. I mean, if you told me that when I was 11 going to school and I had to do double chemistry, which lasted one hour and 15 minutes, that one hour and 15 minutes lasted about two weeks in today's, in my, I don't know if you had things like that when you, I was looking at the clock the entire time, and the second oh, hand yes. was just moving like a slug. It wouldn't even get round fast enough. And I'm just going, oh, this has got to end. I'm in, I'm in hell. No, you're in a chemistry class, Paul. Yeah, <laughs> just get to grips with it. But right. you know what it's like, that perception of time when you're young and how it shifts so Absolutely. Much. Yeah. And it actually didn't, you know, speed the way that it does now, but – we're able to savor the time. We're yeah. actually able to corral the time and use the time the way that we probably should. And that is to do whatever it is we're supposed to do in order to bring more good things to the people around us and to ourselves mm-hmm. than when we came here. And we didn't know. We were just, we were you know, obviously a baby, you know, a toddler, a, a teenager, a young adult, and we knew nothing. And we thought we knew something. You know, I look at my my son, I have three three boys, and mm-hmm. the youngest is 16. He's going to be 17. We were talking about that, right? The 17. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at him, seeing myself, and I'm, yeah. you know, and I've told him sometimes, you know, you don't know anything. You know, <laughs> they have to you. because they're, yeah, right. Oh, of course. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like the old, old man, this and that, you know, but he doesn't get it just as we didn't get it, but he will. But I want him to get it before he doesn't have the opportunity to get it. And to get it is 
just really, I mean, look, I, again, 2020 is hindsight and I can talk all, I could wax philosophically, you know, for the rest of my life and it means almost nothing, but you talked, you know, when we started the show, or at least when I came aboard, you asked about the books. Mm-hmm. I can't emphasize enough how vital it is to read. Mm. I, I not even forget about our and and I I haven't promoted it. I don't want to. We're not doing this show. I'm not doing this show to promote any books, other than all the books out there, the books you want to read. All I would say is just read. I mean, especially if you're young and you can get a jump start on all this stuff. I mean, because the reading will will provide the answers. I'm sure of that. I know you agree with me, Paul. I do. I do. I mean, I, I made reading a big focal point in my life when I was younger as a, um, like a willful, I must do this type of thing. It was odd. I mean, my parents were pretty bright, actually, but there were hardly any books in the house. I couldn't work this out. There weren't any. My dad was a naturally bright and very chatty and a really big-hearted guy. He really was. He was a very affectionate and, and loving sort of man, but very fiery at times as well. So it was a good combination. He was great. And he was very practical. And he looked after people. He sort of led by his behavior. And he could read. He'd read lots of books when he was young, but he just got on with... He was just doing a lot of things. So there weren't many books in the house. And I thought, right, I'm going to start reading all these classics. This is when I'm about... 17 <laughs> let's go back to that age wow. just before that there you go so i made myself read war and peace when i was 17 i just said right what's the biggest book i can find? look at the size of this monkey it's enormous right so i read it it was absolutely not what i was expecting i thought this is going to be dry very hard work and i'm going to read it no matter what whether i don't enjoy it i'm getting through this because my concern with myself at the time was that i couldn't concentrate for long enough and reading develops your ability to concentrate. It also makes you want to get a dictionary because you find that the more words that you've got available uh, that you can call upon, the better you are equipped to deal with where we live, which is driven by thought. Everything that we see, we've mentioned it here before, you know, everything, every building, every piece of music, somebody was thinking about that before this stuff manifested. We live in a world that's a reflection of all the thought of all our forefathers, how they thought about architecture, about dressmaking, about suits, about ties, about tobacco, everything, all of these things, you know. So, and there's a a great, I I wish I kept this clip somewhere. I saw an interview with a guy who was um, stationed somewhere in, I don't know, let's call it a third world country, but a a, a non-Western country. And he used to turn up each day for work in this office. And one day he brought in a dictionary. And I don't know the nationality of the people behind the desk. It's not important at all. I'm not trying to sort of mock them. Someone might think that I am, but that's not the case. He took this dictionary into work. It's an English dictionary. And these people said, what's that book you've got? He said, it's a dictionary. And it was a big one. You know, it's a a sort of longhand dictionary. And uh, they said, well, what's that? He said, well, it's got the language I use, English, it's got every word in it that we use and it's and they put they looked through it it's you know a, a real big one <laughs> and they started laughing about, about it and they said well what's so funny about that they said oh all the words we know and use they're in our head and the point that he made was 
if you've only got X number of words in your head, you're going to build a civilization that's a reflection of that level of language, which is a fascinating thought, and it's true. When you've got this absolute array of thought, you can nuance ideas in communication, and that means you can fine-tune things in a much more precise way. And, of course, you know, mathematics, they say, is a pure science, and science is a pure science, but they all rely on language. They absolutely everything relies on language; otherwise, nothing gets transmitted and communicated properly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm stating the bleeding obvious, as it were, but it's the case, isn't it? And so, once you get a hung, once you get an aptitude for reading long stuff, my sons don't do that, of course. Um, all, actually, I'm lying. That's actually a lie. Now that I think about it, I just think that they're buying books all the time. One of them, in fact, I'm, I don't have mentioned here. He, he taught himself Italian. And then bought a book on Socrates written in Italian when he just came back from Milan about three months ago. He said, this is really good. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's fantastic. Wow. You know, and they're all reading Marcus Aurelius around the house and stuff. And going, great. I said, you read it. He said, what do you think about this? I said, what? Read that to me. And we just have these conversations. And in that alone, life is so rich. I don't need much. Don't need a boat. Don't need a jet. Don't need any of that stuff. You need good conversation with people that are inquiring. It's that attitude. You want to be around people with this, people who are seeking truth. It's the most intoxicating drug of them all, as far as I'm concerned. I can't get enough of it. It keeps us alive, doesn't it? Absolutely. 100%. And, of course, your boys got that from you. And you got it from your your parents, and probably they got it from theirs. Mm-hmm. So it's it's wonderful to be able to, right, pick up that book, and as you did when you were seventeen, and you wanted to get through it, and and that's something I think that, um, you know, uh, folks who go down this path have in common with what you did at seventeen. You know, they they're not waiting for something to come. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think this is a big part of what differentiates people in this realm from those outside of the realm is that they're not waiting for somebody to tell them something. They're going to decide what they want to do and what they want to hear and where they want to go. Because we can sit back and wait for the sign or the signal. Uh, okay, am I allowed to do this? No. You go and do it. You know, if you think it's right, you can do it. You can do anything. Like that guy I met in a hospital once, he had just lost, I can't remember if it was one of his legs or both of them. I think it was one. Mm -hmm. And the guy had like an incredible attitude. He was just like so positive. And I, you know, he said, I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know, a party after I get out of here, like, like it was a party that, you know, I thought he was talking about a party that was planned. And I asked him, I said, uh, what, what's the party about? And he said, there is no party. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, the party will start when I get there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I thought about it. Yeah. And I thought about that. The guy, the guy lost his leg. Yeah. And he's thinking about a, going to a party. So I think we all have to, make a point of setting a goal like you set that goal on war and peace you decided at a very young age what's the biggest one yep that's what i want to do i did that two years later when i went in the navy i asked a recruiter what's the toughest thing i could do and not the seals but you know in the navy on a ship or a boat and he told me i said okay let's try it 
And that's cool. what I think a lot of folks need to do. They need to decide they want to do something and do it. I agree. Don't wait. Do it. Yeah. Dave, we're at the end of the show. Uh, we got about four minutes to go, and there was a request earlier on from Warren for a song by the Beach Boys, and I don't normally do yes. this at the end. I, I have my own sort of tailored music, but I'm going to play it. Dave, it's been brilliant having you on. We'll have you back again, you know, after you've had your eggs next time and everything like that. Yes. I want to th- yeah, really cool, brilliant stuff. Yes, I'm great gonna, time. Thank you, Paul. Absolutely. No, really good. And I learned a few things. Uh, you've said a few things I was, I was completely unaware of. We're going to play out with this one. This is The Beach Boys, Don't Worry Baby, featuring or sung by Laurie Morgan, remixed by Paul uh, in a B-mix. Here we go. Thank See you, you all next week. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Brilliant. Take a